Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight is the Senate border deal dead on arrival. Hours after it was released, it appears to be losing more steam. House Republicans are making clear it's a non-starter. Instead, moving ahead with another approach for aid to Israel. Melina Weiskup on Capitol Hill. The U.S. sends a message to Iran-backed terrorist groups by striking 85 targets in Iraq and Syria. Many are now wondering what will happen next in the Middle East. Jason Perry reports. In California, residents brace for more flooded streets, downed trees, mudslides and power outages. We'll bring you the latest on the storm forecast and damages. President Biden's poll numbers are slipping, while Trump hints at potential vice president picks. Arlene Richards has the latest on those stories, plus more Trump updates. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The long-awaited border deal looks like it's hit a brick wall. Hours after Senate negotiators released the official bill, opposition is mounting. And today's Melina Weiskup has more from Capitol Hill. This newly negotiated bill allocates more funding to handle the border crisis, such as by expanding detention capacity, hiring more border patrol agents and more. It also allocates money for countries including Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Now take a look at how this money is being allocated of the $118 billion, 60 billion is for Ukraine. That's triple the amount that's allocated for the border at just $20 billion. Now there's a growing list of Republican senators who are already opposing this bill around Around 20 say that they'll vote no when it does come up to the floor for a vote. Here's a tweet by Senator Eric Schmidt, which sums up the messaging that we've heard from several Senate Republicans. He said this bill is worse than advertised. We need 41 senators to stand firm to prevent this bill from being jammed through. Now, the lead Republican negotiator on this bill, Senator James Langford, on a call with reporters last night, tried to fend off some of this criticism, saying that the point with this bill is to shift the paradigm under the current administration and give future administrations the tools that they need to adequately secure the border. But he also acknowledged that this bill will not address the millions of immigrants who have already crossed illegally under the Biden administration. Here's Langford. The default is release everyone into the country. This changes the paradigm 180 degrees. When the border is being overrun, everyone is deported, but it does not address those who are currently here. That was one of the red lines that we all had at the very beginning. Now, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer is pushing for a quick vote. He wants to hold the first procedural vote on this bill by this Wednesday, but it's looking like it's dead in the House. House Speaker Mike Johnson has called it dead on arrival. We saw a statement from leadership today saying that this bill is a non-starter in the House. Instead, House Speaker Johnson is pushing for a standalone Israel aid package to vote on at some point during this week, but it's questionable as to whether that could get a vote in the Senate. Will senators be willing to let go of this newly negotiated bill? to take up that standalone Israel aid package. Now, as for Ukraine aid, this is a sticking point among the whole Republican conference. Remember, that's why we're even here in the first place is because Republicans required action at the southern border in exchange for Ukraine aid. So aid to all of these other countries, Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan is now up in the air. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
The situation in the Middle East continues to escalate. Israel Defense Forces are clearing their way through the Gaza Strip and will soon be fighting terrorists near the Egyptian border. And many are wondering what will happen next after the U.S. struck 85 targets in the Middle East on Friday. NTD's Jason Perry has the war update. Israeli soldiers in the Gaza Strip were seen firing at terrorists in Khan Yunus when a grenade landed nearby. When the soldier looks to the side, a terrorist with a knife was seen charging full speed ahead until the soldier shot and killed him. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave an update on Sunday. To date, we have toppled 17 out of 24 Hamas battalions. Most of the remaining battalions are in the southern Gaza Strip and in Rafah, and we will take care of them too. Israel Defense Forces will soon be fighting terrorists in Rafah, which is even further south than Khan Yunus and near the Egyptian border, where many of the displaced Palestinians have taken refuge. We were forcefully displaced from Khan Yunus. They followed us. And now we've been forcefully displaced to Rafah. But where else are we meant to go? And over the weekend in Israel, family members of hostages held captive by Hamas blocked the road to Israel's Ministry of Defense as they demanded the government to make a deal to release the hostages. On Monday, former IDF spokesman John Conricus gave an update on the hostage negotiations. The reports that I have are that Hamas are, are making demands that will make it extremely difficult for Israel even to start negotiating about, and that's why I'm concerned about the fate of the 136 Israeli hostages that have been held now for more than 120 days. This comes as Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to the Middle East to continue the negotiations for a possible ceasefire, as well as try to prevent the war from spreading to other regions. His first stop was in Saudi Arabia. Blinken is also set to visit Egypt, Qatar, Israel and the West Bank. Blinken's trip to the Middle East comes just days after the United States struck 85 targets in Iraq and Syria on Friday, after an Iran-backed proxy group killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan with an attack drone. Department of State spokesperson Vedant Patel elaborated on those 85 targets. These locations were carefully selected, uh, and there is clear and irrefutable evidence that the facilities targeted were used by groups and individuals directly involved in the attacks on the Americans. And White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Sunday said there will be further action taken against the Iran-backed groups. Also over the weekend, the Iran-backed group Islamic Resistance claimed responsibility for a drone strike that hit a U.S. base in Syria on Sunday. No U.S. soldiers died, but the strike killed six Kurdish troops. Jason Perry, NTD News. A powerful storm swept through California on Sunday and continued today. It's marking the start of anticipated days of intense rain and snowfall. One person died in Santa Cruz County Sunday afternoon after a tree fell into a home. NTD's Christina Corona gives a weather update from Los Angeles. Torrential rain and heavy winds from the atmospheric river have extended across California. From San Francisco to San Diego, many parts of the state have seen up to nine inches of rain since the storm arrived on Sunday. Just 10 days ago, the riverbed behind me was completely dry. Today, it is rapidly flowing and moving quickly. 
Flood alerts have been issued for 38 million people as the National Weather Service warns of a weather storm that could be potentially historic. The storm has sent trees crashing onto power lines and cars, in addition to triggering life-threatening landslides and flash flooding. Governor Gavin Newsom issued a state of emergency for eight counties in Southern California Sunday. Counties under the state of emergency are Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, San Diego, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara and Ventura counties. As of Monday morning, more than 500,000 people in California are experiencing power outages, primarily in the northern and central regions. The heavy rain forced mandatory evacuations in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties, and Los Angeles firefighters rescued 16 people from a street hit by mudslides Sunday. Recent snowfall in California boosted snowpack levels, with Levitt Meadows receiving an additional 18 inches since Sunday. The National Weather Service confirmed we could see up to 14 inches of rain in the mountain and foothill communities by the time the storm is over. We can expect showers until Friday. Christina Corona, Entity News, Los Angeles. President Biden's poll numbers are slipping as former President Trump dominates in key areas. Meanwhile, Trump hints at potential vice president picks. Entity's Arlene Richards has the latest on those stories, plus more Trump updates. Former President Trump is gaining momentum, according to a new NBC poll. He's leading President Joe Biden by five points, an increase of three points since November. NBC correspondent Steve Kornacki said the additional points are significant. Over time, we have been testing for five years now, going back to 2019, a Biden-Trump matchup. Remember, 2019, 2020, Joe Biden led. He led big in every single one of our polls. For the first time in November, Donald Trump pulled ahead in our poll, and now at five points, this is the biggest lead NBC has ever had in 16 polls for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Trump's lead is shown in major policy and personal comparisons. For example, Trump leads Biden by more than 20 points on the question of who would better handle the economy. And on the question of securing the border, Biden trails Trump by more than 30 points. Registered voters also believe that Trump is more competent and effective than Biden, and the incumbent President Joe Biden has another hurdle to overcome. Undergirding all of this is this question of, he is the incumbent Joe Biden. We ask voters, what do you think of the job he's doing? And look at that, Kristen, 37% approve, and now 60% disapprove. Trump is confident he will become the Republican nominee. He told Fox News. Well, I'm winning every election by tremendous numbers. He says his vice president has to be presidential, like maybe Senator Tim Scott or South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Trump didn't say who his top pick would be, but he did say he would give New York a heavy shot in his campaign. He's planning to hold rallies in South Bronx and Madison Square Garden. The planning comes amid an illegal immigrant crisis in New York. About 51% of New Yorkers said they disapprove of Governor Kathy Hochul's efforts in handling the influx. Trump said he believes Democratic strongholds are unhappy, and he thinks they can be flipped in the general election. Trump's presence in New York may boost little-known Republican Mozzie Pillup. Pillup is campaigning to fill the vacant seat left by former Representative George Santos. When asked if she wanted to campaign with Trump, Pillup told CNN, if he can come to help me, I will appreciate that. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
President Biden and former President Trump both appealing to union workers as primaries are coming up in Nevada and South Carolina. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. The Democratic primary in Nevada is happening on Tuesday, and President Biden spent his Monday touting his economic policies and seeking union votes in a key swing state in the 2024 race. Watch. I have a reputation and I'm proud of being the most pro-union president in American history. There's a simple reason for that. When unions are doing well, everybody does well. Not a joke. Back in 2020, Biden narrowly won Nevada by less than three percentage points. And Trump, meanwhile, is also appealing to union workers, including at an event last week here with the Teamsters. There's millions of people are pouring into the country. And that's a killer for the Teamsters. And I'm going to stop it. Well, Biden's been warning voters in Nevada about Trump's economic policies. Trump and his migrant friends want to give another billion-dollar tax, multi-billion-dollar tax cut to the super wealthy and the biggest corporations. And the Biden-Trump feud continues to play out on Monday after Biden declined for a second straight year to do a pregame interview right before the Super Bowl. Trump on Monday mocked Biden for doing that, adding that he's going to be happy to do it himself, replacing Biden, saying that would be ratings gold. Meanwhile, when it comes to the GOP race in Nevada, there won't be much real competition here as Nikki Haley and Trump are not even going to appear on the same ticket. Nikki Haley is taking part in the state-run primary on Tuesday, while Trump's participating in the party-run caucuses on Thursday. And only the results of the caucuses award delegates to the Republican nominee. And while Haley's campaign is saying that they're not going to even spend a dime or an ounce of energy on Nevada and will focus on South Carolina instead, Trump is widely expected to win there as well, as he's leading Nikki Haley in the polls by double digits, even in her home state. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. A Facebook video depicting President Biden as a pedophile is allowed to stay up, but Meta's oversight board said the company's current rules are the ma- on the matter are incoherent and too narrowly focused on AI-generated content. The board is funded by Meta but runs independently. It took on the Biden video case in October in response to a user complaint about an altered seven-second video of the president posted on Facebook. The clip manipulated real footage of Biden exchanging I voted stickers with his granddaughter during the 2022 midterm elections and kissing her on the cheek. The board's ruling on Monday is the first to address Meta's manipulated media policy. The company said in a statement today that it was reviewing the ruling and would respond publicly within 60 days. Coming up, Texas reports a sharp drop in illegal immigration. More than a dozen governors gathered to show support for Texas's border actions. Find out what they had to say to NTD's Kelly Wright. Senators unveil what's in the border and foreign aid bill. Our guest says the bill is unnecessary. Hear his reaction to it. And sad news from the United Kingdom today. Britain's King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer. More in just a moment here on NTD Evening News. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Texas's Governor Greg Abbott says the razor wire is working. Texas reports illegal immigration is down from 4,000 people per day to just three. 
NTD's Kelly Wright joins us live now from the southern border where he has been speaking with locals and officials. Kelly, what are you finding out? Well, Tiffany, I'm finding out a lot, quite a bit of the fact that people feel that sovereignty has been lost. I've talked to local people here. In fact, I'm in front of the Kinney County uh, Courthouse where I spoke moments ago with the Kinney County attorney, uh, Brent uh, Smith. We're going to be talking to him in just a few minutes from now. But the bottom line is that they have declared a state of disaster here, a state of emergency. They feel like they're being invaded. In 2021, they had 3.2 million illegal immigrants apprehended. And yesterday, on Sunday, Governor Greg Abbott, along with 14 other Republican governors, gathered at Eagle Pass. And the governor then mentioned that this year alone, this past year, 10 million illegal immigrants have come into this country, and many of them are illegal uh, uh, smuggling drugs as well as human trafficking and child exploitation. The bottom line is all of those governors sent a clear message to the president of the United States to do the right thing, close the border. Governor, there are Americans living here on the border who say that that sovereignty has been lost and that they're walking around in fear and they feel that the federal government has failed them. What about you, governors? Are you going to be able to step up to protect their sovereignty and give them the right to be free citizens here in their own state? And you're talking about the the local residents in this area? Yes. So, first of all, uh, I think the local residents around here are, are angry and rightfully so. Uh, because their area, their, their neighborhoods, their golf courses, uh, their shopping areas, all have been invaded. But I cannot tell you the number uh, of ranchers and homeowners uh, who live, whether it be here or in Del Rio or up and down this entire area, who, who cry and complain about uh, their ranches being ripped apart, their homes being invaded, uh, fearful about their children playing in the streets, uh, all, all the uh, uh, car chases uh, that are taking place in neighborhoods. This has turned into a danger zone. I mean, the federal government's role uh, under the Constitution is to protect our borders, right? And if they fail to protect the borders, then states are obligated to step into that particular breach. Uh, none of this would have to happen if the federal government would simply enforce the laws that are already on the books. Still the greatest country on the face of the world. And we need to be thankful for that, but we also have a responsibility to protect it because I want my kids and every kid growing up in this country to get to have the same America that we're growing up in right now. But we're going to have to fight for it and protect it if that's what we want to pass down. So you can see what the governors have to say, but I'm right here with a local attorney, a prosecutor as well. Here uh, is Brent Smith of Kinney County. You grew up here. And you were telling me earlier that people have lost their sense of uh, protection and security here. Has sovereignty been lost here along the border? Absolutely. The, you know, the residents of Texas along the border, we no longer enjoy the same rights as other Americans do. The, the, the right to safety and security in your own home. And, you know, our community has had a struggle with this. We've had to put up military-style barriers around our school to keep smugglers from driving through campus. It, you know, it's, it's, it's bad to say, but it's like a war zone. I mean... We have to do something, and I appreciate the governors and Governor Abbott stepping up to try to protect our sovereignty when the federal government won't. Mr. Smith, I thank you. I know we got you for a few minutes, sir. We didn't expect you to come out, but thank you for coming out to talk to us. Uh, he went on to actually give to the governor that state of declaration along with 42 other counties. As a result of that, Governor Greg Abbott started Operation Lone Star, which the gentleman you just spoke to, or we just spoke to, Brent Smith, went on to help facilitate but the bottom line, Tiffany, he said it very well. 
people feel like they're in lockdown mode. In fact, they received text alerts from DPS and local sheriffs, including the county uh, attorney, to go on to tell them and warn them when there are helicopters flying over and when the illegals, the gotaways, are coming through this area, Kinney County, which happens to be the epicenter of OTMs, other than Mexican, that means Chinese uh, nationals coming through this area, as well as people who are trying to get through to this area with some sinister and nefarious purposes. Tiff? And Kelly, the Senate has put together a border bill that's tied to aid for Ukraine and Israel. It now it's already receiving some pushback in the House. What do local authorities think about it? Well, you know, it's amazing. I, I just talked to Brent and he uh, had to leave. But earlier we talked about that Senate bill. He said he has read it and he said that it's dead on arrival. In fact, he says that he wouldn't agree to it, that the president himself already has the law and the legal authority to do the right thing here at the border, and that is to shut down. He basically believes that politics is being played in this election year from Capitol Hill, and he basically wants to send a clear message to Congress that it's time for everyone to actually understand what's happening here to the people on the border. He basically says that Senate bill is filled with a lot of loopholes. Tiffany. Kelly, thank you for that update. Officials in New York City are planning to hand out prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants sheltering at hotels. A pilot program will be run on 500 families first. The cards can only be used at grocery and convenience stores and are meant for food, hygiene products and baby supplies. Parents staying short term at the Roosevelt Hotel will get the pilot cards to replace the hotel's food service program. The cards are refilled each month with an amount based on family size and income. Applicants need to sign an affidavit promising only to spend the money on exclusive items or lose access to the program. If the pilot is successful, cards will be given to all illegal immigrants sheltering at city hotels, roughly 15,000 people. City Hill City Hall officials are touting the program as a more cost-effective way for the families to get food and baby supplies. Joining us now to discuss the Senate border bill tied to aid for Ukraine and Israel, we have retired Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb. He is an international military strategist. Darren Gobb, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thank you. Glad to, be, glad to join you today. Now, senators unveiled their border deal over the weekend. This would include aid to Ukraine and Israel. Now, it is waiting for a vote this weekend. If it passes, it will then go to the House, where Speaker Johnson is already saying it's dead on arrival. What do you make of this bill? Well, frankly, this bill is just an insult to anybody who can read English. It's, it's, there's no point to it. We know they're trying to sneak things in through the funding mechanisms and through the law to try to make it look like we're doing something effective on the border when all we really had to do was go back to the day before Biden's inauguration and put it all back to what that was. Uh, this, this bill is unnecessary, and I think it's just going to waste a lot of money and make things worse. Hmm. Now, on that note, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was telling MSNBC that if this bill doesn't pass, America might fight in Ukraine. How real of a threat is that? I don't think Chuck Schumer knows what he's talking about at all. I mean, how would you know, failing to do our duty on the southern border as a federal government have anything to do with sending American soldiers into a war in Ukraine that isn't our war, that is not approved by Congress to do that in the first place, and the two aren't related, other than the fact that both of them are trying to take our money.
Now, this does come as immigration is one of the top issues for voters as they head to the polls. Now, conflicts in the Middle East are continuing the war in Ukraine, obviously, and tensions in Asia are now starting to pop up. What does the U.S. need to do to deal with all of this that we're seeing? Well, sad thing here is the cat's out of the bag in many ways, and none of this needed to happen in the first place. But now it has. So so now what do we do? Well, first thing I would do is start by putting the harshest sanctions possible back onto Iran. That is a message that we actually mean to take away this, you know, the, the financial supply chain with which they buy all this material for all these mercenary forces throughout the Middle East to conduct this terrorism. Uh, I know we're not going to get everything perfect right away because that money's already on hand. They've gone from eight to eighty billion dollars in reserves. Uh, but we can do things financially first. I'm okay with what a little bit of what they're doing as far as like intention, meaning taking some of the chess pieces off the board in the Middle East that Iran uses. Whether that be Hamas, whether that be drone launch sites, logistics sites, command and control nodes, and things like that, that I'm okay with. Now we we're we're not sure what the results are of our bombing just yet, but um, that's a that's a place to start, and that's just the Middle East. All of this is tied to China, to Russia, to a lot of things going on that seem to be circling around the United States. In terms of the Middle East, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Saudi Arabia. This is in a push for a hostage release and a ceasefire in the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. Now, this does come after the U.S. had pinprick strikes over the weekend in Syria and Iraq after three U.S. troops were killed in Jordan. Is the U.S. effectively working towards its goals in the region? Well, it's hard to tell. Uh, now, this isn't a I guess a comment about the military's execution of the mission that it's told to, to carry out, and they did that extremely well. The question is, politically, did we achieve the strategic ends of what they said those are supposed to be? It doesn't look like that initially. Uh, it remains to be seen. We haven't fully analyzed everything that we've hit, but based on what we're seeing now with uh, the Houthis and others already starting to come out and make threats and launch things at American and other forces, I don't think the deterrence is there. Um, and that's why I'm concerned about the, st the strategy that we don't seem to have in place. And if it is there, it doesn't seem to be well understood or very well executed at the, uh, uh, the, the strategic level inside the United States government. And how much does all of this, the tensions we're seeing around the world, come down to how the world views the U.S., especially after the Afghanistan withdrawal? Well, in the end, it all does. I mean, it starts with uh, China meeting with us in Alaska and basically running the table on us. And we walked away from there with our tail between our legs, moving on into Afghanistan and Kandahar 2021. Shortly after that, you saw a predictable Russian invasion of Ukraine when we told when we didn't promise them they wouldn't that Ukraine wouldn't be part of NATO. And as you continue to walk the dominoes down, you see that this is a go going exactly as uh, myself and the people in my organization and what we do predicted that it would. And now we're watching the Pacific area very closely right now. But frankly, the number one threat that we need to be concerned about as a nation is still our southern border. Darren Gobb, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a good night. Britain's King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer and will postpone public appearances and duties. That's according to a statement today by Buckingham Palace. 
The king is 75 years old. He spent three nights in a hospital last month for a procedure for an enlarged prostate. Doctors then noticed a separate issue. The palace said that tests identified a form of cancer. The palace did not give any details, but a royal source said that it was not prostate cancer. Coming up, former President Trump's legal battles intensify as the election cycle goes into full swing. Our guest says two of the cases are the most consequential. He breaks it down for us. First blown off doors, now misdrilled holes. Find out more about Boeing's plane troubles. And El Salvador's president, who put 75,000 suspected gang members in prison, has just been re-elected. Find out why he's popular and why some U.S. lawmakers are concerned. That and more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The Senate unveiled the $118 billion bill on the southern border and foreign aid. It plans to give Ukraine $60 billion, Israel $14 billion, and the southern border $20 billion. House Speaker Mike Johnson says the bill is dead on arrival. Israeli forces are planning to begin fighting in Rafah near the Egyptian border soon. This comes as Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to Saudi Arabia as part of a Middle East visit. A powerful storm hits California, marking the start of anticipated days of intense rain and snowfall. The heavy rains brought mudslides, mandatory evacuations and power outages to parts of the state. A new NBC poll shows former President Trump up by five points in a rematch with President Biden. At the same time, Trump hints at potential picks for his vice president, including Senator Tim Scott and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Former President Trump has filed his reply brief before the Supreme Court hears oral arguments over the Colorado decision to kick him off the ballot. Trump's brief says the American people, not courts or election officials, should choose the next president of the United States. Joining us now to discuss the legal battles that Trump is facing, we have Josh Hammer. He's senior editor at large for Newsweek and host of America on Trial. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Trump is the current GOP frontrunner for president, but he is also battling a slew of legal battles from New York, Georgia to D.C. What effect do you see this having on his campaign? Well, it's going to physically gobble up time from the campaign trail. I mean, for the very simple reason that you cannot physically be in multiple places at once. So it's definitely going to cut into his time physically spent holding his trademark rallies and things like that across the nation's swing states, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, states like that. The million-dollar question, Tiffany, is what happens if there's actually a conviction? What happens if Trump is actually convicted in one of these cases before November? Now, looking at the legal calendar on these four cases, I'm pretty skeptical that the prosecutors will be able to rush these cases quickly enough in order to get a conviction. The only one that they might be able to get it in in time, I think, would be the Alvin Bragg case in New York City. But that case is so frivolous, it is the most legally meritless of all four of the Trump prosecutions that, if anything, I actually think it might help Donald Trump if he were to somehow get a guilty verdict in that total sham of a prosecution. On that note, if he does get convicted, how would that impact his chances at becoming president? I think Iowa caucus exit polls were showing one third of caucus goers were saying if he were convicted, they wouldn't vote for him. What effect do you see that having? Well, 
It probably would not be helpful. I mean, I think the New York case is so laughable that it actually might be an exception to that rule. I, I, if I were Trump, I would not be particularly upset. It, it, let me put it this way, Teddy. If that's the one case where they're actually going to get this thing across the finish line before November, things could be a heck of a lot worse for Trump. Now, where I think he actually could be in, in danger is if the case is in Washington, D.C. or in Georgia. Those are the two 2020 election-related cases. Uh, that's what the mainstream media, the left, first to us, the election subversion cases or the stolen election case, whatever. Th those are the two cases. And the reason I say that is because you can actually, if you can get a guilty conviction for Trump before November in either of those cases, those are the ones that the Democrat media complex, so to speak, will start carpet bombing the airwaves. Oh, he's an insurrectionist. Oh, he's a criminal. Oh, he's a traitor. He's a this, he's that. And that actually probably could ultimately cut into a lot of swing state voters, maybe those typical suburban mothers, things like that, some soft Republicans, people who might be naturally Nikki Haley supporters. The good news for Trump is that I don't think they're going to get in in time. I don't think that either of those cases is going to result in a verdict before November. I obviously could be wrong. That's just my, my current speculation as of now. So. I don't think it's I don't think it's panic time yet for Donald Trump when it comes to the timeline here, especially given what we've seen in Georgia just over the past week or so. The Georgia case is going to get delayed a lot longer than we thought it would. And it was already only scheduled for August. So they're going to push that back probably now even further. I think from a strictly timing perspective here, Trump's in decent shape. Now, in terms of New York, a jury in the Eugene Carroll case awarded her $83 million from Trump. And now in the civil fraud case could also result in hundreds of million dollars of fees for Trump. Now, Trump is calling both of these a political witch hunt. Others are saying no one's above the law, even a former president. What's your take? The Tish James fraud case, which is this sprawling fraud case against the Trump organization where she's seeking upwards of $370 million in damages. We're expecting a ruling from the, from the judge there, a name by the name of Justice Arthur and Goron. We're, we're expecting a ruling there in the next couple of weeks or so. I mean, to say that this is harrowing and bone-chilling stuff, I think, would be an understatement. I mean, if you were an entrepreneur, if you were a prospective small business owner there in New York State trying to start up your own organization, what does it say that the power of the state can actually be weaponized to try to call your organization fraudulent simply because they disagree with the subjective way that your properties were appraised and therefore you were able to secure bank loans on different terms and interest rates than the powers that be in the prosecutor's office say that you should have? It's, it's Deeply, deeply chilling stuff there. Unfortunately, it seems like there's going to be a guilty verdict there. The only question is what the actual damages number is. Trump is obviously going to appeal that. When it comes to E. Jean Carroll, very similar thing here, $83.3 million in, in defamation damages. I mean, are you serious? Including $65 million in punitive damages. So, for you know, to break down the legalese here, you have compensatory damages, which is what it takes to make the victim whole again. And then you have punitive damages, which literally exists for no other reason other than that the court just wants to slap a penalty on someone for the sake of saying, you acted very, very wrongly, sir, and you will not do this ever again. So they put $65 million in punitive damages there on Trump. It's egregious. And, and Tiffany, I would argue it's actually probably unconstitutional under a 1996 U.S. Supreme Court case called BMW versus Gore, which tries to pare back the level of punitive damage the Supreme Court does not view they do not view punitive damages favorably. It, they view it as sometimes a violation of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. So there also, I think Trump is in decent chance there, decent shape on appeal. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thanks for having me.
Boeing aircraft dealing with another problem, misdrilled holes in the main body of the plane. This comes after entire door blew off a Boeing aircraft in January mid-flight. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Multiple misdrilled holes were found in the main bodies of multiple Boeing 737 MAX jets, prompting Boeing to rework 50 of them. This comes after a door blew off a Boeing airplane last month mid-flight. Boeing says it will delay the deliveries of the 50 737 MAX jets. Already delivered 737 MAX jets will continue flying. It's more of a, you know, kind of a, a, a technical issue as opposed to a safety of flight issue uh, with the airplanes. Aerospace expert David Noletti says the issues are an anomaly. He believes these are well-designed, robust, and safe planes that he himself would be glad to fly in. As for people who are worried about seeing the door blow off mid-flight. The issues with the emergency door plug are limited to 737 MAX 9s with passenger configurations of less than 200 passengers per airplane. Um, so if you don't want to fly that plane, you can simply look at the airline you're considering flying, look at the, uh, the configuration of the aircraft that they're operating and determine if you feel comfortable doing that or not. Noletti says 737 MAX 9s with fewer than 200 passengers are only required to have a door plug based on current regulations. He says he himself would be comfortable flying in them after seeing Boeing moving quickly to address the issue. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. A possible connection between marijuana growing operations and the Chinese Communist Party. Members from both houses of Congress are seeking answers from federal agencies. Based on a leaked 2023 memo from the Department of Homeland Security, 270 illegal marijuana growing operations in the state of Maine have suspected links to China and were possibly generating billions in revenue. According to the Epic Times, the bipartisan group sent a letter to AG Merrick Garland last week expressing their concerns. They want, they want to know how many marijuana farms are being allegedly run by Chinese nationals, especially those with potential ties to the Chinese Communist Party. They believe that thousands of illicit Chinese marijuana growing operations pose a direct threat to public safety, human rights, national security, and the addiction crisis gripping our nation. In some cases, the GROW operators were also engaged in human trafficking, forced labor, drug trafficking, and violent crime. Lawmakers say most of these illegal pot farms can be found in states with legalized or relaxed marijuana laws. The man who cracked down on drug gangs in El Salvador and stemmed migration to the U.S. just won re-election as president. Here's that story. El Salvador re-elected its president in a landslide on Sunday, even though it's against the country's constitution. By Monday, President Nayib Bukele had 83% of the vote, against 7% from his nearest competitor. This will be the first time where one sole party rules a country in a completely democratic system. We pulverized all of the opposition. El Salvador's Supreme Electoral Tribunal last year permitted him to run for a second term. Opponents fear Bukele will seek to rule for life. He's popular due to his crackdown on drug gangs. We have started to defeat our biggest evil. We are on the cusp of winning the war against the gangs. 
The crime groups made life intolerable in El Salvador and fueled waves of migration to the United States. Under Bukele, authorities suspended civil liberties to arrest more than 75,000 Salvadorans without charges. Nationwide, murder rates plunged, and now about 1% of the population is incarcerated. Literally, we went from being the most dangerous country in the world to being the most secure in all of the Western Hemisphere. But the economy will present a new challenge. Extreme poverty has doubled and private investment has tumbled under Bukele. U.S. senators have expressed concern about the state of democracy under Bukele, who describes himself as the world's coolest dictator. While U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he will continue to work with him. Coming up in the NFL with less than a week to go, Super Bowl prices remain sky high. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss why this year's event is shaping up to be the perfect storm. Surprising twists and memorable moments at this year's Grammy Awards. From a special appearance to an arrest, we'll bring you the highlights. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Now, Dave, no regular season or postseason NFL action yesterday for the first time since September as we await the Super Bowl. Why is there two weeks off instead of the usual one? Yeah, I really think it's for you and I, you know, as media to give us more time to talk about it. I mean, they know it's the biggest spectacle of the year. They want as much media attention as possible. Now, this week as the teams arrive, they'll have some big media events uh, with the players giving interviews as well. But I think this also gives fans of these teams as much possible to buy their tickets on the secondary market, of course, and then make plans to get to Vegas since it's always played at a neutral site. Plus, I think it actually helps the Pro Bowl as well. Like, like you said, there were no playoffs, regular season games over the weekend, but they did have the Pro Bowl, which is like their all-star game. Now, it was never feasible to play it during the regular season when it was a tackle football game. I suppose it's possible now that it's a flag football contest, but I think if you had this after the Super Bowl, it would generate even less fan interest, and it struggles as it is compared to the rest of their games. Well, now regarding those Super Bowl tickets, you reported last week that the average ticket price was in the neighborhood of $10,000, which would be a record. Where are they now? Yeah, still pretty high. If you went on to SeatGeek this morning, the lowest ticket price was just under $6,000. I mean, that's the lowest, and of course, that's way in the back. Last year, that was actually around the average price. Now, the highest ever average price was $7,000. That was set three years ago when Tom Brady and the Bucks beat these Chiefs. But that was done in a stadium that was at one-third capacity due to COVID restrictions, so demand was probably a little higher then. Either way, this is looking like the hottest Super Bowl ticket ever. I think the venue is the big reason why. This is the first time this game is being played in Vegas, so it's like the ultimate combination, the biggest party game in the biggest party town. Plus, San Francisco isn't too far away, so their fans are surely flocking to this game. Really, with the star power on both these squads, they've got fans everywhere. I also think the uh, Taylor Swift being involved with Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, it really brings more fans as well. It's like the perfect storm almost. Well, now moving on to college basketball. Over the weekend, there were several major top 10 matchups going on. Have they significantly altered the new rankings? Yeah, it actually didn't change very much. The top three remain the same. UConn, Purdue, North Carolina. It probably solidified those, th those three because North Carolina beat Duke. Purdue won at Wisconsin in two of those top 10 matchups that you mentioned. Now, I picked number eight, Kansas, to beat fourth-ranked Houston you know, at their home in Allen Fieldhouse, where they rarely lose. 
but I never expected them to do it so handily. I mean, they made one of the biggest jumps of the week going from eighth to fourth. Houston, meanwhile, just fell from fourth to fifth. The last of those games was Tennessee winning at Kentucky. Now, the Vols actually fell from fifth to sixth because they also lost to South Carolina earlier in the week. Kentucky, though, dropped from 10th to 17th. They lost twice last week. Now, interestingly, these same four big matchups will replay the second week of March, which is the last regular season games before March Madness. So we'll have to see where they're at then. Well, now shifting gears to baseball, the small market Kansas City Royals have signed shortstop Bobby Witt to a contract worth nearly $300 million. What's been the reaction around the league? I mean, there's some surprise. You know, baseball is unlike the NBA or the NFL, which are more even playing fields. In baseball, they don't share huge amounts of TV revenue. Each, TV, each team has their own local TV deal, and they really vary based on the size of your market. That, combined with no salary cap, has really created a league of haves and have-nots. Kansas City has been a have-not for quite a while. Now, for instance, the LA Dodgers gave Shohei Otani a $700 million contract a month ago, and they followed that up with a $325 million deal for Japanese star Yoshinobu Yamamoto. The Royals, meanwhile, they had never even got over $100 million for a deal. But this is certainly the right player to give it to. He's 23 years old. He plays the toughest position in the game. That's shortstop, and he plays it really well. Now, technically, it's an 11-year, $288 million contract, but Witt can opt out and become a free agent after years 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm doubting it gets that far if he's playing well, but for the struggling Royals, it keeps, them, it keeps a great player in Kansas City to build around. They just need to find players to build with him. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. The 2024 Grammy Awards unveiled some unforgettable moments. Taylor Swift's historic win, Celine Dion's surprise appearance, and a twist with Killer Mike's handcuffed exit. NTD's Stephanie Sakal tells us more. The 2024 Grammy Awards featured notable moments with Trevor Noah as the host, infusing humor by consistently incorporating Taylor Swift jokes. Swift made history by winning Album of the Year for the fourth time and surprised the audience with the announcement of a new album scheduled for release on April 19. Other highlights included Billie Eilish and Phineas winning Song of the Year for their Barbie movie soundtrack contribution, Jay-Z receiving the Dr. Dre Global Impact Award and addressing Grammy distribution issues. Miley Cyrus received her first Grammy win for Best Pop Solo Performance and Record of the Year with Flowers. And Celine Dion received a standing ovation as she presented Taylor Swift with the Album of the Year Award. Despite being diagnosed with stiff person syndrome in 2022, Dion expressed genuine happiness for being part of the significant event. The night took an unexpected turn as Killer Mike was escorted from the Grammys in handcuffs after winning three Grammys. However, it was later clarified that the incident was a misdemeanor unrelated to the events inside the arena. Killer Mike's team reassured that it was a minor issue, likely to be swiftly resolved. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.